Hey, this is Jake with Mishmash, where we unjumble an important and sometimes under the radar statewide issue that affects you. Sheena's still out on maternity leave. I am bringing you conversations that I have been having throughout this summer as a way of sort of keeping things going while Shana is out. And one of the really great conversations that I've had recently is with Abdul El-Sayed. Now, you might remember him as a Democratic candidate for governor here in Michigan this last go-around. He also was the health director for the city of Detroit, an epidemiologist by training, and he is now the author of a book called Healing Politics. And I really wanted to talk with him about this moment of reckoning that we're seeing right now, about the protests that we're seeing after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, uh, the protests here in Detroit and across the country, of course, that he has been involved with. And I really wanted to get his take on the intersection of that and public health, this political moment that we're in in an election year, and what he takes away from all of these things sort of happening at the same time. Uh, We kicked off the conversation talking about how many cities and public officials are declaring racism and structural racism and police brutality as public health crises and public health emergencies, taking steps to actually declare those as public health emergencies. And this is what he had to say about that topic. Well, I'll say that I'm glad that politicians are finally coming along. Uh, In the public health world, we've been talking about systemic racism and police brutality and mass incarceration and over-policing as public health issues for a long time. And the reason why is, you know, quite simple. If you uh, look at the the evidence. Um, There was a really simple study done in 2005 by uh, David Satcher, who was a former Surgeon General uh, under Bill Clinton. And he asked a a very simple question. He said, how many lives would we save if African Americans died at the same rate as white Americans? And he estimated that we would save 83,000 lives a year. And so you can attribute those lives to systemic racism, differences in access to healthcare, sure, but also access to clean air and and drinkable water and housing and a good job that pays a living wage and a good education and access to the the polls uh, as a voter. All of those things differ based on race. And um, we saw the worst of it in the assassination of George Floyd. Uh, by a police officer in Minneapolis. And then we also saw another part of that iceberg uh, when we looked at the mortality differences in COVID-19 among black Americans versus white Americans, two and a half fold times as likely to die per capita of COVID-19 if you're black in this country than if you're white. And so racism is a public health issue. It is a it is the most important social determinants of health, maybe after poverty, uh, and the two are, are deeply intertwined. And I'm really glad that politicians are, are are getting serious about it. Now the question becomes, how do we turn this into policy? And, you know, I've got some some thoughts about that in the book. But I think if we're serious about it, we can't just pay it lip service. And, and that's my fear is that politicians uh, are going to pay it lip service. You know, there we go. We declared it a public health issue. Now we can move on. No, that's just the beginning. Um, and there's a lot more work we need to do from a policy angle. So talk about some specifics there. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of action right now. We're seeing a lot of people involved. Uh, We're actually seeing public opinion shift if you see, if you're looking at polls uh, nationwide right now on a lot of these issues, a lot of perceptions changing. What happens next? What is the next step to really address what protesters are demanding? 
Yeah, well, you know, I'll say this. I was the health director in a city that had privatized its health department back in 2012 when it was facing municipal bankruptcy. Can you imagine if the city had said, you know, we're going to privatize our police department? And you think about it, right? Public health should be just as important, if not more important. And yet we are systematically underfunding public health. We're underfunding public libraries. We're underfunding public schools. Uh, we're underfunding parks and rec departments. And um, that's true in Detroit, but it's also true in every other major metropolitan in the country. And so right-sizing that and saying, you know, rather than investing in a force of people who respond with guns and put people in jails, what if we were to take on systematic poverty by investing in the means of uprooting that poverty itself? What if we were to invest uh, in social services? What if we were to invest in public schools? What if we were to invest in public libraries? What would the world look like there? And I think that has to be the way we go. And that means both investing more in these services, and it also means investing less in police. Um, one of the most disturbing things that we've seen over the past 20 years is as uh, our country has gone to war abroad, a lot of the military materiel that is second-handed from the military uh, is then passed off onto police departments in the streets. And so uh, we're seeing police go to war uh, with their own people. And um, and I think that has to end. Um, and then when we think about you know, the kind of prosecutors and the kind of judges that we we elect, they have to look a lot more like leaders like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, who recognize that um, a prosecutor's job isn't just to throw people in jail um, and throw away the key. A prosecutor's job is to do justice. And doing justice requires us to ask, what were the circumstances within which somebody might have committed a crime? And how do we make sure that that person isn't routed into the, the incarceration system, but rather is given the opportunity to expand and improve and engage? And the fact of the matter is, every single person who winds up in jail, or worse, dead at the hands of a police officer, has been failed by our system, either directly because uh, of our over-policing or indirectly because we have failed to invest in the things that uproot poverty in communities across the country. And I think that has to be the next step. You know, I think that a lot of people listening might be nodding their head as they're listening to you talk. And, uh, you know, what you're saying is what the defund the police movement, I think you could call it now, is saying. I mean, that's what that is about. But as soon as you say those words, uh, I, I wonder if, I mean, I have seen editorials, I've seen people speak out, say that they think that that phrasing is uh, is getting in the way in some ways of, of the message that, that you just articulated there. I'm curious what you think of that. Um, uh, not to say uh, in any way that I think that the the solution is to criticize the the messaging necessarily, but uh, you know, in, in explaining like you just did exactly what's behind that uh, is is the most important thing. But I'm curious what you think of sort of those con those concerns uh, that as soon as you say defund the police, people shut down. Well, I'll say this: um, we are in a moment where a lot of our public conversation gets uh, chewed down into 280 characters or less, and um, that is not the best way to talk about anything. So you'll note I didn't say defund the police; I just described what I think needed to be done. And I, I do think that we need to be really focused on describing and explaining. Uh, rather than um, sort of hedging on one side or the other behind a hashtag. I believe that we do need to defund the police insofar as defunding the police 
is uh, disinvesting in the means of incarcerating someone or killing them on the streets and in investing more in the means of educating uh, and empowering engaging communities uh, with the means of being able to take on systemic poverty that we've allowed systematic racism to allow to fester in too many communities. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think I like to talk about it as refunding, right? I want to refund on the taxpayer dollars that I pay to, uh, to police who use that to buy war materiel, to uh, wage war in our streets. And I want to refund public health and public libraries and uh, public schools and uh, the means of, of uprooting poverty. And, you know, that, that is the work that I tried to do when I was at the city of Detroit, uh, and that there are many, many public servants who are committed to doing. You know, what we call that is to me less important than uh, what we do about the problems on the ground. I'm so, somewhat leery of ideology in general uh, in the way that sometimes it tends to obscure, and people are a lot more wor worried about whether or not something fits dogma uh, versus whether or not it actually services somebody uh, in in their lives, and um, and to me the the question I always ask about public policy is what would this mean for a small child that I got to take care of when I was health director in the city of Detroit? Would that uh, improve their pathway to an education? Would that improve the air they breathe and the water they drink? Uh, would that empower them to? Uh, to, to, to be and do in the world and have every opportunity that uh, another child growing up maybe 20 miles away in uh, a suburb might have? Um, and how will that shape the kind of uh, contour that, that that child's life follows? And, and so to me, that, that, that really is the more important question. Um, but look, you know, we are in a moment right now, a crisis moment, and people ought to be outraged about where we are, and they are. Um, but I also think that there is a way sometimes where terminology... Uh, tends to make us think that things are more radical than they really are. Um, you know, I, I've been a, a, a longtime advocate for Medicare for All. And uh, early on, a lot of folks said, well, that is extremely radical, right? That is, that is, that is going to be a government takeover of healthcare." Uh, but when you step back for a second and just describe the way that our healthcare system works right now, you realize that that is quite radical, even if we got here slowly. And to advocate that we ought to go back uh, to a system where we empower patients uh, rather than the profiteers who run our healthcare corporations, I think we come to appreciate that, uh, that actually radical is what we have now and what we're advocating for may seem radical because it's so far from what we all think you know, is possible because we've been so corrupted uh, by the, the slow encroachment of a system uh, that has taken us so far away from what we would want. So, of course, you're standing with the protesters. You're saying a lot of the things they're saying as well. And you're also an epidemiologist. So talk about the concerns that we're hearing about, whether large gatherings like this, where a lot of people are wearing masks, but some aren't. Uh, if they might be a risk for spreading COVID-19, are you concerned about that in any way? So I'll say a couple things about that. Uh, num number one, th there is no fair pitting of the protests for black lives against public health. Because as I mentioned earlier, Jake, we know that um, 83,000 Americans lose their lives to systemic racism every single year. And the the, the protesters we're out there because we want that to end. And in that respect, this is a, a public health intervention. So it's, it's, it, unless you devalue the lives that we're fighting for, which are black lives, by saying that some, they're somehow less important uh, to focus on than uh, the lives that are lost to COVID-19, which by the way, are disproportionately black lives as well, um, then there is no coherent approach to pitting these protests against public health. That's number one. Number two, 
it's true that uh, mass gatherings are a hazard when it comes to the transmission of COVID-19 in theory. Um, but what we have seen now, you know, more than three weeks out from the the the, the protests and, you know, more than two weeks out from the um, the peak of the protests, which uh, took place the weekend after George Floyd's murder, um, is that there hasn't really been a spike in COVID-19 cases as a function of the protests, at least not that we're seeing. And it's, um, you know, the, the numbers just aren't showing it. And so, you know, as an epidemiologist and as someone who is most committed to the to the evidence most of all, I just don't see any movement. And there's a good explanation for this, right? Number one, um, these protests took place outside in uh, the summer months, and it was quite hot at the beginning of, uh, uh, of the protests. And so we know that that uh, reduces the potential for transmission. Number two, they were mobile, right? So people weren't just standing in place protesting. Uh, oftentimes they were moving about protesting, which reduces uh, the potential for people to be exposed to those droplets. And then number three, um, protesters often were quite conscientious, despite the fact that there were some who weren't, of course, uh, but were conscientious to be wearing masks and to protect themselves and others for, from the potential for, for COVID-19 transmission. And so with that, we just haven't seen the theoretical spike that was, of course, possible because of the protests. So all said, you know, I think, uh, number one, these protests are and were necessary. And, um, you know, for any folks who are worried about the protesting, my question is always, all right, what are you doing to abrogate the need for these protests in the first place? What are you doing to ensure that Black Lives Matter in all of the policies that you oversee or you're a part of, uh, or even the small space in which you you live your life and, 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 and you speak within your own circles? Um, but then number two, you know, playing it out now, it's been um, uh, now several weeks since the protest started. Uh, we haven't seen an increase in in cases. And to me, that suggests that, you know, because of the, the, the mobility and because of the outdoors and because of the masks, um, you know, people did did end up doing this safely, even if there was a potential uh, theoretical hazard there. So one of the things that has been on my mind a lot lately in conversations I've been having uh, with people who are especially skeptical about what might happen with the demands of protesters and so forth and, and whether uh, systemic racism could be impacted in a really significant way, there are, again, skeptical people I've talked to who say people would have to give up too much. People's lives would have to change too much. And the thing that's been on my mind as I have those conversations is, well, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. We can see how our lives change now and how they change in an instant and, and how we can adapt. And that's coming from a place of significant privilege, of course. But I think it's also true that many Americans are maybe seeing for the first time how their lives can change dramatically in an instant. And maybe this is an opportunity. And the, the fact that we've all been through this so far gives us an opportunity to envision a very different world. I'm curious what you think about that and where you see the possibilities for solutions and change and how that might intersect with this shared trauma that we've all been through. You know, Jake, I, th I think you're, uh, you're exactly right. I think COVID-19 has shown us just how vulnerable we all are and given us or forced us to embrace a certain empathy to recognize that however hard it was for us, it was so much worse for so many others. And then lastly, recognizing that our own well-being 
is actually a function of the well-being of others directly uh, and indirectly. And I think in this moment, there is a recognition of the fact that things could be so much better and a natural question about why they are not. And in my book, I talk about this idea of an epidemic of insecurity. And I think the the COVID-19 pandemic epitomizes that idea and the problem with it because it shows us that we have disinvested in the means of protecting ourselves from collective harm through you know our public health force in, in, in one way, but then also a politics that actually cares for all of us in another. And then we have allowed major corporations to make decisions to, in effect, decouple our well-being from theirs. And you saw stocks um, rally uh, on news that unemployment was the highest it's ever been in this country. Now, this idea that somehow the stock market can rally when unemployment is at an all-time American high, that really has to ask, force us to ask a question about what these corporations are serving and, and how we benefit or, or are harmed by that. And I think people are finally asking those questions and waking up to the recognition that actually we are all truly and deeply on this earth together. We are all in it together. And unless we are willing to build a system that cares for all of us, then none of us uh, will have the kind of security that I think all of us really deserve uh, and can have and can build. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think you're right. I do think that COVID-19 has changed the national outlook on what we want, who we are and who we want to be. The question now is, what are we going to do about it? So you're the author of a book called Healing Politics. Uh, tell everyone uh, what they might need to know about this book if they're interested. Yeah, it's, um, you know, as, as you know, I ran for governor of Michigan and I'm an epidemiologist by training, meaning my job was to understand uh, the determinants of disease, why we suffer. And as I campaigned, I thought that I'd put the epidemiologist in my mind to rest while I was a candidate. But I realized that on those long drives home from communities across the state, that I was meeting people who were suffering from a collective disease that we all suffer, which is this epidemic of insecurity. And rather than analyzing lines of data on a spreadsheet, I was looking into people's eyes. I was you know, holding their hands as they squeezed mine to emphasize an idea uh, I could see the stress that, that, that hunched aback. And I came to appreciate that right now where we are is that our politics are being driven by a fear of the future where, that is forcing us all to protect what we have, that is leaving us open to being demagogued and being divided through a politics that continues to take. Um, and what we need to do is to come together to rebuild so many of the systems that we rely on in our lives. Uh, the system of healthcare, of housing, of jobs in an economy, of policing, systems of voting and politics. All of these have been corrupted to the, the aims of a few corporations uh, that are profiteering off of our insecurity. And I believe that if we're going to do it, we have to find a collective empathy for each, each other, a willingness to look beyond what someone is saying and ask why they're saying it. How does this epidemic of insecurity impact their lives? And I tell my own story. I tell stories from people that I met across the campaign and in, in my career in, in, in healthcare uh, and in public health 
um, to really illustrate what I mean by that. And so I hope folks will check it out. Uh, they can go to healingpoliticsbook.com to order a copy. But um, I do believe that it is quite salient uh, to the moment that we're in right now, both uh, as we struggle with COVID-19 and as we finally take on the epidemic of racism that's come with it. Uh, how did we get here and what can we do uh, to move forward? Abdul El-Sayed, author of Healing Politics, thank you so much for joining us today on Mishmash. Jake, it's been it's been a privilege. Thank you so much for your time. Always nice to talk with a fellow alum of Andover High School. All right, go Barons. 